I'm so happy to be in this building today. Um, just so honored. Journey Church, uh, I, I know Christian mentioned uh, that we have been able to help plant a lot of churches at, at, uh, through Westridge Church in Dallas, little Dallas, Georgia. But I say this with all sincerity. I mean this with all my heart. Journey Church is our favorite, by far. Um, I know this is going online, so I'm getting in trouble right now. But um, we have a deep, deep love and appreciation for, for Christian and Daniel Newsom. And um, we hung out with them in England and Scotland for 10 days this past summer and didn't get tired of each other one time, which that says a whole lot. But um, just love this couple, love their family, love this church. I know you guys know that good things are happening here, but from somebody from the outside looking in, I hope you realize that this is unique and special. God's doing something very unique and special here, and I'm so grateful that my son Zach and his beautiful wife Kelly get the chance to be part of this, and I cannot thank, first of all, Christian and Danielle, the elders who are here, uh, Todd and Vanessa Higgins, you guys have been like parents away from home, thank you, and, uh, but you guys are investing in them and pouring into them, and I cannot have, Amy and I couldn't think of a better church for our son and his wife to start off ministry in than, than Journey Church, so can I say thank you publicly to all of you for just pouring into them and loving on them so, so very well. Well, Pastor Christian has asked me to uh, be the closer in the series that y'all have been in called Broken People, Sexuality, Marriage, and the Gospel of Grace. And I'm so excited to, to kind of bring an ending to this powerful series that y'all have been in. And I love this little tag phrase that he has used throughout all of it, which basically says, believe the Bible, behave like Jesus. You know, we're, as you think about all the, the stuff that we're going through in culture and all the things that we're going to experience, I can't think of a better line for all of us to grab hold of, which is so, so simple, but so powerful. Let's just believe the Bible behave like Jesus. Matter of fact, I think we should all paint that on the walls of our house. It's such a great reminder. But when Pastor Christian asked me to speak on the topic of grace this morning, I'm, I'm going to be really honest with you. I was, I was both excited and I was also a bit overwhelmed. And here's why. I love the topic of grace. I love grace. I'm not just an undeserving recipient of grace. I am a student of grace. And to be honest, I'm kind of addicted to it a bit. But here's the challenge I find with grace. Just when I feel like I have figured it all out, God shows me that I just still have so much more to learn. Just when I feel like I've got my hands around it, I realize that there's just so much more to it. Just when I feel like I've gotten to the bottom of it, all of a sudden I realize there is no bottom to it. And just when I feel like I've earned it and I actually deserve it, I'm reminded that there is nothing about me that deserves any of it. Now, you might be new to the faith or you're like me, you're still growing and learning about this beautiful thing called grace. So I'm gonna try to unpack it just a little bit before we get into Matthew chapter 20 here today. What is grace? Well, one of my favorite authors, Pastor Chuck Swindoll says, God's is, grace is God's favor shown to those of us who don't deserve it, cannot earn it, and will never be able to repay it. Philip Yancey says this, grace says no amount of sinning can make God love me less, no amount of good can make God love me more. Grace is unmerited. Grace is, according to Tony Evans, the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is God's unmerited favor. 
It's unmerited, but it's also unlimited. I love the Apostle Paul's words to this church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So it's infinite, it's boundless, it's immeasurable, but it's also unending. It's unending, it's eternal, it's, it's continuous, and I love this, it's relentless. It just keeps coming after us. Well, how is God's grace given to us? Well, first of all, we know that we have common grace. God's work in the world provides every living person with just what we call common grace. We, we all get sunshine to keep us warm, and we're praying that you guys get more sunshine here on a regular basis here in Kansas City, right? We all, we, we all get rain to keep things green and growing. We all get air to keep us breathing. And that's all a part of God's common grace. But then there's special grace. God's special grace is specifically available to us through the work that Jesus did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. God's saving grace frees me from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. It, it provides forgiveness from sin that I just don't deserve. None of us deserve. God's strengthening grace reshapes and empowers my life. It's molding me and, and conforming me to the image of Jesus. God's sustaining grace is carrying me through the trials and pains of life. It, it's carrying me and covering me through, through tough times. And I could go on and on, but that's just a glimpse, a glimpse of, of God's special grace. So regardless of what kind of grace that we're talking about today, here's the truth about all of grace. Here's the bottom line truth. Grace is God giving you what you need rather than what you deserve. Let me say that again. Grace is God giving you what you need rather than what you deserve. Now, here's the challenge with the statement that I just read to you. Sometimes when it comes to God's grace, it's easy for us to feel like God is being not just unjust, but also unfair as it relates to how he chooses to distribute his grace. We may not admit it outwardly, but most of us have had this feeling before that God was not managing his grace very fairly, equally, or, or justly. I mean, you know, your friend shows up to church in a brand new car, and here you're still driving the same old 20-year-old clunker that just barely started this morning. And you're looking and going, I don't get that kind of grace. Sometimes, say at work, you know, someone at work gets promoted in front of you, even though you've been at the company for five years longer. And you're like, what's up with that grace? Maybe your health is failing right now, but there's an older friend who is just a picture of good health, and you're like, God, that's not fair. Or your kids are struggling spiritually, or maybe even physically, while it appears that another family's kids just seem to be sailing through life with no issues at all, and you're like, God, it doesn't seem very equal to me. Or you've just experienced a tragedy in your life while, other, while, while you're watching other people just live out their best life all the time on Facebook or Instagram, and you're like, oh, you're just scratching your head over that. Here's the truth. We all have dealt with the temptation to be confused and even sometimes angry at how God chooses to distribute grace. And sometimes we question his goodness and his fairness and even his character. And we may not say this out loud, but sometimes we're thinking, God, are you actually fair? God, are you a bit unjust? Do you actually see what I'm going through? Do you actually care What's happening to me right now? Maybe you're listening to me right now going, okay, Brian, I hear you when you say that grace is unmerited and I don't deserve it. Listen, I get that. I hear when you say that grace is God giving you what you need rather than what you deserve, but I don't feel like I deserve what I'm going through at this moment. Matter of fact, I, I, my family does not deserve 
what we're dealing with at this moment. Honestly, God doesn't seem fair when it comes to the way that he chooses to distribute grace. So what do I do when it appears that God is handling, handing out special favors to some and constantly giving me the short end of the stick? What do I do when God's grace doesn't seem to make sense to me? Well, this morning, in an effort to answer some of these tough questions we've just talked about, about grace, we're gonna look at the parable of the worker in the vineyard in, in Matthew chapter 20. You say, what's a parable? A parable is a story that makes a comparison between a known truth and an unknown truth. It, it throws them alongside of each other. It's a story that actually teaches us a spiritual lesson. Now, in order for us to understand why Jesus taught this particular parable, we have to understand the context in which he taught it. Jesus is teaching this parable in the immediate context of the rich young ruler who was consumed by his material possessions. I had a chance to listen to to Pastor Christian's message from Matthew chapter 19 last week. It was excellent. Did such a great job teaching it, but I'm gonna rehash it for just a moment, at least the end of it. After Jesus told this man, this rich young ruler, how he could obtain the one thing that he didn't have and couldn't buy, which was an authentic relationship with God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the man basically wanted nothing to do with it. Why you say, you say why? Well, because in order to f- truly experience the free, unmerited grace of salvation and the love of God, it would inevitably lead this man to surrender himself to God's priorities, God's provisions, God's purposes for his life. Full surrender and unconditional allegiance to Jesus means that we just let God be God. And this rich young man just couldn't, ex- he just couldn't agree with the terms. So he exited the story full of himself, full of wealth, by emptying, but, but, he, but he was completely empty of God and empty of anything that actually had eternal value. And then seeing how this man refused to surrender even just a token of his self-reliance over to Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, it always seemed to be Peter, right? Peter jumps into the conversation and he says, Jesus, I've been listening to all that you've been talking to you know, over here with this rich young guy. What kind of rewards could we expect, your disciples expect, for surrendering everything to follow you? I mean, these guys had given up their lives and their livelihoods to completely follow Jesus. And Peter's just like, hey, Jesus, I I just want to be honest. I I want to know what's in it for us. I want to know what's in it for me. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, he gives them some assurance that they're going to be just fine in the end. He, they, they were going to have some inheritance. They were going to receive some benefits. He says, guys, to be honest with you, I'm going to give you some authority in my upcoming kingdom. Now, I'm sure they felt good about that. Can you just picture being in this moment? The disciples are standing around. Peter's talking to Jesus. They're listening. Jesus is saying, in the end, it's all going to work out for you. You're going to have some inheritance, benefits, blessings. I'm actually going to give you some authority. They're high-fiving each other. They're, they're doing fist bumps. They're flying through the air doing the chest bumps. They may have, you know, Peter, James, and John actually have a little special handshake going on, you know, that kind of thing. But then out of nowhere, Jesus makes this interesting, possibly confusing statement to them at the end of chapter 19. He says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, can you just feel the air just go out of the moment? I mean, these guys are like, they're, they're just almost flying through the air, chest bumps. Whoa, Jesus, what, what did you just say? Well, to explain what Jesus just said, Jesus just dives right into this parable, and we're gonna do that right now. Look at verse one, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day 
and sent them into his vineyard. Now, Jesus starts out the story by describing a scene that would have been very common in first century Israel. Matter of fact, this would be a common scene in many urban settings all over the world. I've actually watched this scenario take place in Guatemala, where you guys work as well. Um, I've watched it take place in Burkina Faso, Africa. I've seen it in some downtown urban urban settings like Detroit and Atlanta. People will line up with tools in their hands. They're ready to work. Someone pulls up in a truck and picks up four or five people out of a larger group. And then the ones picked jump into the back of the truck and they head off to work. And the ones who don't uh, end up getting picked either go home and they wait till tomorrow or they, they, they get picked up by another foreman. And in Jesus' story, here's what happens. A landowner goes to a marketplace before dawn. He picks out just enough workers for what he needs for that day. He agrees to pay them one denarius, which was a Roman coin back in the day, which was fair pay for a day's work, okay? And then the landowner takes the workers to the vineyard and he puts them to work. And again, this was a very common scenario. The disciples would have completely understood what Jesus was talking about. But then the story begins to take a very awkward, unfamiliar turn in verse three. Let's look at it together. About nine in the morning, Jesus is teaching, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and he did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and he found still others standing around and he asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And they responded, because no one's hired us. He said, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, let me give you just a little reasons why this story would have just completely gone off the rails in the disciples' minds. A real-life landowner would have known at the beginning of, of, of the day how many workers he would have had needed for the day based on how much work he knew needed to be done. But this man, in this story, he keeps coming back to the marketplace every three hours during the day to gather up more workers. Now, notice the story doesn't ever suggest that the landowner goes back to get more workers because he determined that he didn't have enough work, he didn't have enough work available, or he didn't have enough, okay? So why does the man keep going back? What's, what's the purpose here? Well, it appears that the motivation behind hiring the second and then the third and maybe even the fourth wave of workers would have been because they couldn't find enough work and now they didn't have enough money to support their families. Okay, so you get that in mind. But hiring the 5 p.m. workers almost pushes Jesus' story to the brink of ridiculousness. Why would this last group of workers be needed when the work is almost over? Now, imagine for just a moment, okay, put yourself in the story. You are a 6 a.m. worker and you are working in the fields in Jesus' story. If I'm a 6 a.m. worker and I'm watching all of this strange hiring activity play out right in front of my eyes every few hours, here's what's going on in my mind. Here's how I'm sizing up the situation. I'm getting a full denarius for a day's work. All right, I'm getting what's fair. The 9 a.m. crew, in my estimation, well, they're getting three-fourths of a denarius for three-fourths of a day's work because in my mind, that would be fair. The 12 p.m. crew, they're getting a half a denarius for a half a day's work. The 3 p.m. crew, they're getting a fourth a denarius for a fourth of a day's work. And I have no idea what the 5 p.m. crew is getting. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. The sun's about to go down. I mean, they shouldn't be paid anything, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. Why are these people even out here? It makes no sense. These guys expected the landowner to just be 
just and fair. They expected that everyone was going to get an amount of pay that matched the amount of work that they had just put in. Well, starting in verse 8, Jesus throws a nasty 12-6 curveball right into the story. You know what I'm talking about, Christian? I mean, it's, it's a curveball that just drops right off the, the table, and the hitter's just completely mesmerized and confused. I had to work a little baseball into this message, okay? Look at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I'm generous? Now, what's happening in this crazy parable right now? Well, in accordance with Jewish law, the landowner sees to it that each laborer is paid at the end of the workday. All the laborers are assembled in, gro- assembled in groups in, in, in the opposite order in which they were hired. The workers that, hired at fi- at, uh, that were hired at, at, at 5 p.m. and barely broke a sweat, they come forward first to receive their wages first. But instead of receiving what we all think that they should have received, which was one hour's worth of work, they actually received a full denarius, the, the pay for a full day's work. Now, let's put ourselves back into the story for just a moment, okay? Let, let's, let's pretend that we've all shown up to work at 6 a.m. There are probably a couple different reactions that are going on in our mind as to what you know, we see taking place right in front of our eyes. Now, some of you in the room, you're thinking, maybe this foreman got everything mixed up. He's accidentally giving these 5 p.m. workers what is owed to the 6 a.m. workers. I mean, it's all an accident. The landowner, he's going to come in. He's going to fix this. It'll all be taken care of. But then you remember that the landowner told the foreman, pay the last group first. And now you're getting upset. All right, now you're getting upset. And you're grumbling to the other, the other workers about how unfair this landowner is. Okay, that's reaction number one. But then there's a possible second reaction from the 6 a.m. workers. And quite honestly, this is probably where I would be after I've now kind of reevaluated the situation and now I'm watching what's actually taking place. I'm now doing the math in my head, right? And I'm thinking, okay, if these guys, if these workers worked one-twelfth of the day and got a whole denarius, then what am I getting? Guess what I'm getting for working 12 times longer? I'm getting 12 denarii. And now I'm excited, because I'm planning on our family vacation to Israel Disney. Our family's going to the Mediterranean Sea. We've got a beach week planned in front of us, right? I mean, fair is fair, right? It would have been totally reasonable to believe that each group would have expected their pay to be prorated according to the number of hours that they worked. But the point of Jesus' very unconventional parable is not that people get what they deserve or that people should work hard for their wages. This is a parable about God's grace. It's God's grace being illustrated by the overwhelming mercy and generosity and goodness of the landowner. Now, 
every good sermon, every good story will always have an element of conflict. There's always going to be a challenge to overcome, a problem to solve, or a question to answer. Last night, we were watching the movie Ratatouille. Um, since, since my boys got married this past year, we have been watching more Disney movies in, in our house and in their presence than I've ever seen before. And I've never seen them, this movie about this rat, but I like it. All right? I like having these girls in our family. But we got into the story of Ratatouille last night, and I'm going, here's the conflict. Here's the conflict. Now, I'm not going to share it with you because I don't want to spoil it for you, but it did come out, what, about 25 years ago? So you need to get caught up. But in this story, Jesus' story, we've run into the conflict moment. Okay? The 6 a.m. workers are getting upset. They are back They're in the back of the line and they're watching every group get the same amount of pay for the day. And as they're watching all of this unfold, their dreams of Disney are just, they're just going out the window, the day, the week at the beach with their family. I mean, it's all being deflated, all right? And verse 11 tells us that they begin to grumble at the landowner for what they perceive to be employer injustice. And they're mad and they are now resentful and they feel like they've been treated unfairly. I mean, in, none of, in, in their minds, none of this makes sense to them. Now, how does the landowner respond to these disgruntled workers? He reminds them that he paid them exactly what they agreed to before the workday began, which was what? One denarius. He reminds them that he was entirely fair and just for giving them the agreed upon amount. There was, there was no foul play. No workers' laws were, were broken in this story. He actually had given them a normal day's wage, which is more than enough to feed a family. These men had no grounds to accuse the landowner of any wrongdoing. He gave them exactly what he promised them. He gave them what they deserved. Matter of fact, not only was this landowner being fair, but he was actually being generous. Now you may be going, how so? How so was he being generous? Because knowing that those who had only worked an hour or three hours or six hours, knowing that they wouldn't have enough money to support their families if, they, if he prorated their pay, He decided to treat them with grace and generosity by giving them what they deserved and what they needed. Not what they deserved, excuse me, but actually what they needed, which was what? A full day's wage. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Well, he explains it in verse 15. Because the money belonged to the landowner, he had complete freedom to distribute however he wanted. It was his shot to call. It was his shot to make. And according to Jesus... Only a worldly-minded person would become envious when a generous person demonstrated this kind of grace, which was exactly how the 6 a.m. workers responded to the story. And quite honestly, it's how I would have responded. I mean, just thinking about this whole thing playing out in front of us. And as I said earlier, a parable is a story that makes a comparison between a known truth and an unknown truth. And the response of the landowner in the parable is meant to mirror the grace of God, the mercy, the goodness, the character of God. The, it, it, it's, it's just meant to mirror how the Father chooses to work with all of us. God's economy of grace is never based on merit or wages or even good works. So, so we should rejoice when God is gracious, not just to us, but to other people. Our response to God's grace and his generosity, even when it's directed towards others, should be thankfulness and appreciation, knowing that God owes us nothing, but yet we owe him everything. So when we get tempted to think that God is not being fair or, or, or that he's not giving us what we feel like we deserve or that God maybe is overlooking us or maybe he's, he, he's unfairly giving to those who really don't deserve the blessings that we're getting, 
We have to take our minds back to this parable for just a moment. And we have to remind ourselves that God's economy is fueled by grace and not by merit. We have to remind ourselves of these words that, that Jesus very strategically and purposely repeats in verse 16 where he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And we have to trust the heart of God and the wisdom and sovereignty in how he chooses to distribute his grace. Now, I'm not gonna lie to you. This is a tough parable to get our our minds around because it goes against our flesh. It actually goes against our human nature. This kind of grace can sometimes be a tough pill to swallow. Honestly, it can be tough to understand it uh, at times. And let me tell you why I think we struggle with this kind of grace. I I think it's all about attitude. We actually, there's actually two kinds of, of attitudes that will actually squash this kind of grace. The first one's comparison. We live in a world where we are just constantly comparing ourselves to other people all the time. Most of us have access to social media in our hands all, at all hours of all days. And all we have to do is turn on Instagram or, or Facebook or even TikTok. And the temptation to compare is just right in front of us all the time. We compare our everyday lives to other people's highlight reels. And we look at people you know, on Facebook or Instagram. In our minds, we're like, how can they keep... How can they keep affording to go on vacation like this when I can barely make ends meet? I mean, it must be nice to live in that neighborhood. I see you moving into that new home. It must be nice to live there when I'm still living over here. Or, or how does that kid make that team? I watched that kid play. My kid's definitely better. That kid, I won't go there, he's, but he's bad. Why did, I, why, why did they get that award? I worked, I worked so much harder than them, and I was overlooked. What happens when we get our eyes fixed on others and we get them off the goodness and grace that God has shown us? Here's what happens. Here's the result. Criticism and competition. Comparison causes us to be envious and jealous of one another. It causes us to be judgmental and and critical. We We don't even know what's going on, but a critical spirit kind of sets in, and quite honestly, it causes us to fall into sin and squash out God's grace in our lives. Because ultimately, we're actually being critical of God's grace. We're being critical of his generosity and his goodness and his mercy. Here's another attitude that squashes out God's grace. It's the attitude of control. When we lose sight of God's economy of grace, we tend to want to take matters into our own hands and fix what we think God may have gotten wrong. Now think about this for just a moment. Think about things that we do sometimes, just attitudes that we have. We're like, there's no way... There's no way that that person deserved that promotion over me. And so what do we do? We start to stir things up in the office and we start making our case at the water cooler of why we deserve that promotion more than they did to whoever will listen to us. Or in the church world, we just think there's no way that that person should get to lead that ministry over me. I, I have been at this church a whole lot longer. I am way more qualified and we confront someone verbally or we fire off a really ugly email. Why do we do those kind of things? because we want to take matters into our own hands and we start controlling things when we don't like how God is dealing out grace. And here's what happens. Unfortunately, we can fall into a very sinful spirit of manipulation and intimidation. This is where we start making threats. This is where things get ugly. This is where we start taking matters into our own hands and we end up doing really stupid, sinful things that we end up having to apologize for later. This is where we actually feel like, you know what? I think God needs my help. I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna try to help him out. 
Both of my boys, uh, Zach is 24, my oldest son is 28. Um, Both of my boys played sports. They both played baseball, football. Zach wrestled. He was actually a really good wrestler. And, And I cannot tell you how many times I almost lost my mind. Well, let me take that back. I can't tell you how many times I did lose my mind as a dad, because I thought my boys were treated, being treated unfairly on, in the sports arena. I mean, honestly, there were moments where they were truly being treated unfairly. But here's what I couldn't see as a dad just watching all of this play out in the moment. I couldn't see how God was at work in their lives. I couldn't see that God was dishing out, what God was actually dishing out was just the right amount of grace at just the right amount of time in their lives. He he was giving them this special, sustaining, prevailing grace. It, It was grace that was preparing them for his purposes and for his glory. Because here's the deal, if I had had my way, and God had given my boys everything that I had prayed for or, or what I felt like they deserved, they would not be the men that they are today. That's the truth. If I, if I could have manipulated and controlled everything that was going on in their lives, things probably may have turned up to be quite a mess. Because here's the truth. God, God knows exactly what he's doing when it comes to distributing his grace. So what should I do? What should we do? What should you do? when grace just doesn't make sense? Here's the answer. Let God be God. Let God be God. If you find yourself grumbling over the way God distributes his grace, get your nose out of God's business and just let God be God. If you're squashing God's grace with an attitude of comparison, forget about the have-nots, the haves and the have-nots of this world. Put your eyes Fix them back on Jesus. Start seeking his kingdom first and just let God be God in your life. When you find yourself wanting to, to step in and control things that you feel are unfair or unequal, step back, take a deep breath, and realize that you are probably getting ready to completely mess things up. And trust him and let God be God. I love this verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Whoever was a writer of Hebrews says this. It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. Isn't that encouraging? That means God, God's not, he sees everything. He's not gonna forget one thing that you have done. He is not gonna be unjust. He will always be fair. He will always show his love towards you. That means that God knows you. It means he sees you and you can trust him. You can let God be God in your life. Even when it appears that grace makes absolutely no sense to you and you're constantly looking, comparing, maybe even wanting to control how God is distributing his grace, You need to step back and go, Lord, I can trust you. So whatever you're going through today, I I want you to know how much God loves you and how much he really wants to pour his grace on you. You just have to trust how he's doing that. Maybe you're struggling financially today. You're looking at your finances and you're just, maybe you're comparing to other people or maybe you're wanting to step in and control. It's moments like this where you have to say, God, I'm just going to trust you right now. I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm invested in church. I'm invested in giving. Lord, I'm trusting you with my finances, and I'm struggling. Let God be God. He's doing things in your life you can't even see right now. Maybe you have a health issue right now, and it's just one of those moments. You're scared to death. You don't know what to do. Let God be God. Maybe your marriage or family is just, just on life support right now. You've done everything you know to do. You feel like things are just hanging on by a string. And you're like, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And it's just moments like this you have to go, God, I'm gonna trust 
how you're choosing to distribute your grace right now. I'm just going to let you be God in my life. I'm not going to try to fix or to control because I don't think you're doing a good enough job at the moment. Maybe you're dealing with loneliness or grief, grief or loss. Listen, I, 2004, I lost my dad very tragically. Zach was just turning, I think, five years old at the time. I mean, it was, I remember for, for an entire year, I was angry with God. And I'm a pastor. I have to get up every Sunday and preach. And in my heart of hearts, I was angry because I didn't understand you know, how, how God was dealing out grace. I'm looking at, I've got a, a, a young brother who at the time who was 13, 14 years old, and I'm looking, I'm going, God, none of this makes sense to me. Talk about grace and how, Lord, you're such a gracious God, and yet you just took my dad out of my life and it didn't make sense. And quite honestly, I stand up here today at almost 58 years old, and I'm, I still go, I don't see the good in that. But here's what I've had to do. I've just had to go, God, I trust you, because one day I will see it all. Just not right now. But I have watched this string of faithfulness run through my life. And the honest truth, if you could right now go to your very first memory up until this moment, here's what you would see. I promise it. You would see a string of God's faithfulness running through all the valleys, all the mountaintop experiences, all of the dark moments. You would see a string of God's faithfulness just running very consistently, very constantly through your whole life. You can trust him with how he's choosing to distribute grace. Just let him be God. God sees you today. He, you're not alone. He promises that you can come to him and he will give you everything you need. He will pour his grace out on you just at the right time with just the amount, just the right amount because he's a good God and he loves you. Because of that, we can go, God, I don't see it. I don't see A to B. I don't see C to D. I don't see D to E. And God says, I don't need you to see that. I just need you to, tr- to trust me. Let me be God in your life because I got this figured out for you. I want to ask you to bow your head for just a moment. We talked about, a moment ago, we talked about special grace. We struggle so much with special grace, don't we? His sustaining grace, his strengthening grace. I mean, it, Here's where I want to ask you not to struggle today. I want to ask you to struggle, not to struggle with his saving grace. And here's what I mean by that. If you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone to receive his free gift of salvation, don't reject this because here's the deal. It's a grace that you don't deserve, you will never earn, and you will never be able to work for And at this very moment, the Holy Spirit is stirring up your heart and he's saying to you, say yes to this. Say yes. This is the game changer moment of your whole life. It's a grace you can't work for, even on your best day. It's a grace you can't inherit from your family or your background or where you grew up. It's a grace that's undeserved. It's unmerited. But you need to know it's unending and unlimited. Receive it today. You say, how do I do that? Pray with me at this moment. Just say, Lord, at this very moment, I say yes to this saving grace. And I put all my faith and my trust in Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Lord, I repent of all of it. Don't deserve what you're offering me at this very moment. But not only are you providing me forgiveness, but you, Lord, are wanting to reconcile me back to God the Father. And I say yes to that. Jesus Christ, you're the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I put all of my faith and all of my trust in you. I receive your gift 
your free gift of salvation into my life. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.